0: Miss the show, no worries on pointing on this podcast. We're going to dive into the outrage of those now demanding that the military be brought in to stop this freedom convoy. You know, we've had a lot of blockades in this country that went on for weeks, if not months, and they got normalized and justified as a form of protest. And now that the tactic has been co-opted by a cause many don't seem to like, they want the army to come in. We'll talk about that. The police say more protesters are coming into the Ottawa protest over the weekend, including Americans that will join it. And there are convoys planned for downtown Toronto. So have the police here learn from mistakes that the Ottawa police seem to have made in underestimating the commitment of this convoy? And if the Ottawa police say they're, you know, not the solution to this problem, is that an admission of failure? We'll also get the latest on a world-renowned gunsmith who was shot and killed by Toronto police. And according to the warrant, the justification to go into his Port Dover home was because two stolen guns registered to Roger Katenko were found in two separate crimes. Now, his family denies the allegation, but since this gunsmith was so well-known, certainly by local police, why didn't the Toronto police work with them to get a better lay of the land? And hospitals, they were strained before covid And of course, the pandemics force us to look at our healthcare failures in the spotlight. So capacity issues are the big cause of our lockdowns. And we keep hearing how billions are being poured into creating more beds. But isn't this just another untenable Band-Aid fix? We'll talk to the former premier of New Brunswick, who is now in the private sector in the health area. He thinks he's got the cure. Let's get talking.
1: This is On Point with Alex Pearson as I've said many times, uh, I do not think it is ever appropriate to send uh, the military against Canadian citizens.
0: Oh, that was then, and now it's a protest the Prime Minister hates. So what's he going to do if he's asked to call in the army? Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, February 3rd. Great to have you. There's been a lot of developments today all across this province, and of course... They all have to do with the Freedom Convoy because it's uh, it's now on the move and it's popping up across all sorts of uh, areas of the province. There's a convoy at the uh, Sarnia border which claims that it has blocked the border. I'm not sure if that's true, but they've got a picture of themselves out in front of the bridge. So uh, I guess we should keep our eye on that. The main convoy is, of course, uh, settling in for the long haul. And they've built this like village. They've got, like, a f- they've got food. They've got huts. They've got a storage area where they're collecting, like, massive amounts of fuel and propane. I don't know how the cops are letting that happen, but, uh, yeah. (laughs) They've got, like, a store full of, like, canisters all over the place. And then, of course, um, you've got all these calls, which have turned from cops need to get tough to demands that the army be called in to do the job they accused the Ottawa police of not doing. And so, you know, days into this thing, those living... Around Parliament Hill, they are just collectively losing their minds because of the never ending blaring horns. And now, word today more protesters are going to be heading in for a rally this weekend. And this comes after Ottawa's chief of police declared, well, there might not be a policing solution to end this standoff. And so, Let of me course, sh- the protesters say, well, we'll just keep going. So they seem to be amassing more. And the organizers, name's Tamara Litch she actually came out to the media for the first time today didn't take questions but uh, laid out a little bit of of, uh, the timeline let me assure
1: the people of Ottawa that we have no intent to stay one day longer than necessary our departure will be based on the prime minister doing what is right ending all mandates and restrictions on our freedoms
0: okay so here's the problem the prime minister cannot end provincial mandates like, it's, it's not his jurisdiction, it's not his call, so that is a non-starter. And, of course, he's made very clear that his government isn't budging on vaccine passports, which, uh, which means for those caught in the middle of this thing, they're going to have to get very, very, very good earplugs. Like, really. And when you read the words of leftist darling AOC, uh, she said a couple of weeks ago, these are her words, not mine, quote, "...the whole point of protesting is to make people uncomfortable." Activists take that discomfort with the status quo and advocate for concrete policy changes. Popular support often starts small and it grows. To folks who complain, protests, demands, make others uncomfortable. That's the point. There you go. That comes from the leftiest of the left. So why then is this protest different? Look, I think the truckers lose the hearts and minds uh when they cause businesses to close or they're honking the horns around the clock i just don't think that's necessary but the same people who demand that we defund the police are now furious that their own cops aren't being tougher but they want to go further now they want the army to come in and crack heads which is like like where were these demands at all the other protests across this country that went on much much longer and have been more destructive and there are lots of them i mean there was the rail blockades that lasted uh Weeks back in 2020, February of 2020, that thing cost our economy $275 million. And the army, no, that wasn't even brought up. That was never a conversation. And of course, the people of Caledonia, who have been held hostage by land claim disputes for 15 years, army was never a thought, not even at the most violent moments of which there have been many. And I saw them, I know, because I was there covering it. You look to Ferry Creek. It happened in February 21st. This was the um, longest and biggest act of civil disobedience in our country's history. And it was an anti-logging protest in BC where hundreds of protesters set up blockades that lasted uh, months. And there were arrests, but no call for the army. And I could go on and on and on because there have been a lot of volatile protests in this country over the years, but never did it actually lead to calls the army and certainly not days in and though you know those who excuse the illegal blockades in the past those who argued well those are justified now seem shocked that their normalization of such tactics is now being adopted by other causes that they don't like i mean i don't agree how the truckers are doing this but i've spoken against all blockades because i'm consistent i don't like them And so now the Prime Minister finds himself in a little bit of a pickle because he is on record during those rail blockades saying, and you heard at the top of the show, I don't think it's appropriate to send in the army against Canadian citizens. So then the question becomes, what's he going to do now if the provinces or the police or the mayor takes that request and says, hey, call in the army?
1: There were questions uh, a couple of years ago around uh, military uh, when it came to other protests that were blocking critical in- infrastructures. Uh, my answer then uh, can t- can is consistent with my answer now uh, that uh, one has to be very, very cautious before uh, deploying uh, military in uh, in situations uh, engaging uh, Canadians. Uh, it is not something uh, that anyone should enter in likely, uh, uh, lightly, lightly. Uh, but uh, as of now, there have been no uh, requests, and uh, and that is not uh, in the cards right now.
0: Right now. Not for right now. I guess time will tell on that one. I mean, maybe those demanding the Army come to the rescue should be demanding heads roll, uh, maybe the mayor or the chief of police. Like, how did they lose control of this thing? They had weeks of warning that the convoy was rolling. You saw it all over the news, all over the world. And Ottawa gets lots of protests. And you got to think, did no one sit down at the table and say, gee, let's plan for a worst-case scenario. What if a bunch of trucks come in and park? Like, what are we going to (laughs) do? Like, did they meet and talk? I don't know. It doesn't look like it. And Trudeau's now telling politicians that they need to, you know, be responsible waving his finger in the direction of the conservatives. But I wag my finger at all of them. Because Trudeau himself, he could have lowered the temperature on this thing. And instead he chose to malign the whole movement as racist, violent, tinfoil hats. And he may hate the cause, but he should be hearing the national airing of grievances this is brought up, and, and he could have de-escalated it days ago. But the conservatives, you know, they're playing this game of mixing with the protests, where it's alleged that there are agitators coming in from the United States, and where police are saying, you know, the funding of the GoFundMe is getting a lot of money from foreign sources. And if that's true, that's not a good look for them. But, you know, neither is supporting this blockade if you have argued against others like pipelines. You got to pick a lane. But what are those outside the Ottawa bubble thinking? Well, I mean, there's some new polling on this. Abacus Data finds 68% of Canadians have little. They say we have little in common with those protesters over there. I don't understand those people. Then you have 32% on the other side who say they have a lot in common with this message of madness. And that's more people than who actually voted for Justin Trudeau in the last election. So that is not a small number that he can cast off, but neither can any of the politicians. And then there's a little wrinkle that came out today because Dr. Karen Moore in his press conference said, uh, Maybe it's time to reassess the value of vaccine mandates, given the efficacy wanes and that moving forward. Ontario may scrap it altogether. Boy, oh boy. Lots of messages, lots of contradictions, lots of politics at play. But nonetheless, this is a big issue because these protests are coming to our city of Toronto in the GTA, all over the place, in fact. They've splintered all over the place. And in Ottawa, they got a shack built, they've got food coming in, they've got shelters, they're building a collection of fuel and propane, more protesters are coming. And so if you're the police here in, in Toronto, you're thinking, oh my God, are, Like, what are we going to do? Are we ready? Have they learned anything from Ottawa? And if Ottawa, you know, can't solve this with a police solution, have they admitted failure?
2: I have made it clear to
3: Chief Raymer that we must work together to do everything we can to avoid the kind of situation currently faced by Ottawa residents and businesses, to keep Toronto residents safe, and to try to ensure that any protests are respectful and peaceful.
0: And no horn honking! There you go. There's uh, Mayor Tory sending a message ahead of a planned convoy that's uh, expected to roll into Queen's Park uh, this weekend. And of course the concern, and there are many, is that we could see the same kind of uh, stuff going on in Ottawa where you get this noise and, and crippling ground, um, you know, gridlock. And keep in mind, the area around Queen Park, that's all hospital row. Children's hospitals, there's cancer hospitals, and um, those could be very severely impacted And already hearing from some people saying that they've had to cancel some uh, appointments, which, again, this is not the kind of stuff we want. Um, But, you know, Ottawa police said on Wednesday that there's not a policing solution that can solve this, which then led to rumblings that, okay, well, the military might have to be called in. And so it kind of makes you wonder, did the Ottawa police lose control of this thing? And. What does that signal to the rest of the cops trying to get prepared for this? Let me bring in a former cop, Dave Perry, former homicide detective with Toronto Police, now our global news radio crime expert and CEO of Investigative Solutions Network and VP of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Hello, sir.
3: Hi, Alex. I'm glad I'm not in Ottawa.
0: No kidding. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, You know, when you see kind of some of the pictures of this thing, the building building, like a mini village they've got food shelters they've got this massive area where they are collecting like fuel tanks and jerry cans and all these kinds of things how is that even being allowed to happen
3: yeah i think th- there might be even another question to your question is how do you stop it i, I think that's yeah that's the biggest challenge and you know we can all sit on whatever wh- whatever side of this we want in terms of have the police done it right or have they done it wrong that's always the question But what they're facing there, and I think what we're going to be facing this weekend in Toronto, is nothing new. I mean, trucking convoys, we've seen those Mm -hmm. before, but here's the difference. The size and the scope and the nationalization and the commitment is unprecedented. I I don't know. I've, I've been in so many protests in my career, I couldn't even count them. And managing people is one challenge, and we saw how that can really get out of hand quickly, like we saw in Washington last year, like we saw in the G20 Summit in Toronto many years ago. But you know what, Alex? Managing and enforcing a never-ending supply of massive trucks, angry people, uh, well-funded people uh, who seem to have an endless supply. For example, you clear out one group, or we, we uh, you know, we get the heavy equipment and we tow fifty or hundred trucks away. There's another two hundred trucks waiting to fill their spot, and and I honestly don't know what the the police action. Could possibly be to change that scenario right now.
0: Yeah, which makes you wonder. You know, I mean, Ottawa's not. Um, you know, they have they have protests all the time, and they watched this thing roll across the country for days. They saw the money racking in really quickly and you wonder okay at what point in their planning did they say okay this is what we've got to do we've got to stop trucks from parking in the core or not allowed allowing them to establish yeah you can come protest but what you can't do is dig in and and call this your home which is exactly what happened
3: right and you know what there's nobody that would agree with that statement more than me i, I don't know how those people living and working in that area are not losing their minds over everything that's happening mm-hmm. there and it's it's you know. In my view, it's disgusting. I'm so tired of hearing people, including our mayor of Toronto, say, you know, I support peaceful protests. Well, everybody knows that's not what this is. You know, this is uh, something completely different. This is, uh, you know, an occupation, an encampment, where people that, again, are very angry and well-funded seem to think they can afford any law, and I do mean any law, to... Uh, to get their message across and, you know, surely their message has been put across enough by now that they should just disengage and and go home. But that's clearly not what's going to happen here.
0: No, it's not. But, you know, a shame on them, all of them, because at the federal, provincial, and even the the municipal level, um, they made the mistake, those in charge of allowing to normalize these things, be it Idle No More, be it um, the blockades on the rail, be it Caledonia. I mean, they've allowed it to become normalized where, you know, they justify it and say, well, this is okay, they can they can protest, and then all of a sudden a cause comes along that they don't agree with, and all of a sudden it's a problem. It's like, well, this what did you think was going to happen when you allowed it to happen once, and then twice, and then three times, and now it's like a thing?
3: Yeah, it's it's an ongoing erosion of people's respect for other people and for the laws and certainly for law enforcement. There's a complete lack of respect that's been generated by means that we all know way too well. And when you erode the power of the police and you erode... Um, the ability for the police to move in and, and do things appropriately, this this, some con- can be the result. Now, that being said, of course, every protest, and this is going back many, many years from me, even when I was a, first on uh, the beat as a police officer, our approach to protests were always the same. Uh, we're there yeah. to keep the peace, you know, make sure that there's no laws that are broken. And if they are, well, sometimes you got to turn a blind eye if it's something insignificant, to save, you know, inciting something much, much more serious. And that's what's happening in Ottawa in a very large part. It's what's going to be happening in Toronto. And then it's going to come down to, you know, when you have a, a chief of police, like they do in Ottawa, who has thrown his hands in the air and said, you know, this is, there's nothing that the police can do to to uh, finish this, to to take it down or whatever then we're we're in a a very serious situation. And I'm not saying he's wrong by saying that. Because the only way they could go in there and and disband these people is is en masse with a lot of police officers, with an awful lot of force, with tremendous resistance, and probably a lot of violence coming back towards them. And and I think that all that would turn into is a riot at this point. And and it would be ugly. And of course, again, blamed, it would be the police.
0: Right. I mean, but we saw the anger when they moved into the park, into that um, blockade where people had been living in the park in Toronto for months on end and the police moved in. And a lot of people are saying, well, why aren't they doing that to these protesters? But... uh there's no win on either side of this, which begs the question, why the hell didn't they get in there to de escalate this sooner? Uh, which I think, you know, you look at to the prime minister and to others on the political spectrum on both sides saying, like, why are you fueling it? I think the prime minister probably could have done a better job to de-escalate this and didn't. And I think, um, you know, mingling in with them has only just fueled the... the, the you know, the cause. But Dave, knowing uh, Toronto, the way you do, and what happened at G20, certainly, and I look, I hope that nothing like that happens, because I, I do think that a lot of people are tapping into this anger. But behind the scenes, what are they building their plan? Are they looking to Ottawa and saying, Oh, Christ, we we've got to stop that from happening here? Like, how do you get ahead of this now?
3: Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, establishing a perimeter, especially around hospital role there down University Avenue is going to be essential. That That's is the, is the key um, part of their plan to make sure that regardless of what else is shut down and gridlocked in Toronto, that somehow they keep the hospitals open to keep the ability for ambulances to run back and forth to the hospital. So that could take an awful lot of coordination. The, the advantage Toronto has is a little bit more warning. They have the Ottawa experience to, to watch and learn from. And I think if mm-hmm. they are very proactive in, you know, making sure that the routes are controlled, whereby truckers can, only get access to uh, the legislature by certain tracks and they can't you know, go beyond certain barriers, we, we might be able to avoid some of the gridlock they're seeing in Ottawa. But I still think it's going to be a mess. I don't think this is going to be a good show in Toronto coming up this weekend at all.
0: Yeah, no, because um, you can cause an awful lot of trouble. I mean, we've seen the convoys come in in smaller, smaller uh, groups, but trucks are big, um, and you can spread them out and cause all sorts of disruptions to the businesses, and there's lots of communities, certainly around Queen's Park. Um, In your mind, do you, uh, you know, believe that the army is going to have to be called in on this thing?
3: I, I don't believe that the army would be called in except to support the police if things got really violent. You know, we tend in Canada not to use our military against our own people, and I can't see it happening, and I, unless they decided to start towing in mass and they really use military equipment or something like that, there there aren't enough heavy equipment tow trucks in the GTA to pull all the trucks away that they have in Ottawa. There won't be enough tow trucks in in Toronto or the GTA to pull away all the trucks that they have. And of course, can you imagine what that would look like, Alex? You you know, the police mm. are going to go in and they're going to enforce. We got to pick somebody. You're going to pick one truck and you're going to go to that truck and you're going to get surrounded by a, a mob and then yeah. other trucks are going to come in and block your tow truck. Now your tow truck's blocked in there and so on and so forth. It's it's just an absolute policing nightmare and what a football to have to handle. But you know, with some good planning and some route uh blockage and things like that, we might be able to keep some things running in, in downtown Toronto over the weekend. And who knows, we'll have to see. If, I I'm going to guess that it's going to be another occupation. They're not going to leave on Saturday night or Sunday.
0: Time will tell. All right, Dave, thank you. We'll probably be talking again. Appreciate it.
3: All right. I'll I'll honk my horn if I see you.
0: Please don't, but thank you. All right, that's Dave Perry uh, joining us here. We're starting to learn some more details behind the shooting death of Roger Katanko. This is a was a world-renowned gunsmith who lived in Port Dover and who was very well-known by local police who used his expertise for their own weapons, but ended up being shot four times after Toronto police arrived at his home and then rushed his gun shop while he was meeting with a customer. And both the CBC and Toronto Star have done the heavy lifting and managed to get access to the search warrants, which reveal that um, Toronto police went to his home on the grounds that two pistols registered under Katenko's name had been found at two different crime scenes, one in Toronto, the other in North Bay, and the allegation they make is that Katenko illegally transferred the guns to someone else and removed the serial numbers. And this is something that the family absolutely denies. And what's important, I think, is you know Katenko was allowed to have restricted and prohibited weapons. He was allowed to rebuild guns. He had a logbook where he recorded all transactions, but his family. Says that Toronto police took that from the scene and they have not been able to get access to it, but they believe it will clear him. Let's bring in the family lawyer, Michael Smichuk. He is the founder of Smichuk Injury Law. He's also the family lawyer representing them in a $23 million civil suit against the Toronto police. Good to have you.
2: Good evening, Alex.
0: All right, did I, did I lay out the facts of this right? Because when you read through this, what they're saying is that they came all the way from Toronto to Port Dover on the assumption that he must have sold or given these guns to those who then used them in crime. And you say what?
2: Well, I you, you think you have the basic facts right. And the sad reality was that Roger wasn't able to defend himself or his reputation because they killed him. Uh, that's the starting point here, really. That uh, now the family is forced to to do that on his behalf. The reality is that Roger is the one that knew, you know, all the details of all the, the you know the goings and, and the comings and um, and so, like you mentioned, this logbook is crucial to you know getting the full picture. Unfortunately, we have not been able to obtain the logbook yet from the Toronto Police. Um, I can say this though, Alex, that by all accounts. This was, I would say, an amateur job that the police are alleging in relation to the two handguns that were seized. And and Roger was the ultimate professional. So it's inconsistent with who Roger was. It's inconsistent by all accounts with his character as well.
0: Yeah, because it, it's very strict about how you transfer do- firearms. It's a real process for anyone who's involved in that. And according to the information uh, in the, this, um, you know, warrant, the Ontario Chief Firearms Office documents show that the two guns were registered to to Mr. Katanko and they were supposed to be stored in his workshop, but that he illegally transferred the guns to someone else and then Got rid of those uh, the serial numbers, but but there was never any report of a theft or a break in at the home. Can you clarify that? I mean, obviously, without that book and without you know being able to see what's in there or not in there, it's hard to do. Um, but but that's a pretty big allegation for them to make.
2: Well, it is, and it makes it makes no sense because if you someone like Roger who was subject to inspections uh, by the chief firearms officer. Um, he had one just before COVID hit. So if if you know that you're going to be inspected, you know they're going to do an inventory. It really defies logic and common sense that you would transfer two pistols when they were registered to your name and um, and do so illegally. So it, it it defies you know logic. It defies um, you know the inspection process that he was subjected to. But you know really. This does distract from the main issue. The main issue here is for whatever reason, you know, they alleged they, they needed to execute this search warrant. They ended up killing Roger, you know, and, right. and it, it just it's not right what happened. And um, for whatever, you know, whatever the reason is, this shouldn't have happened in the first place.
0: Yeah. And the family initially, and it's important um, that the listeners know, the family hadn't been shown a warrant. Generally, when the police show up at your place, they have to present a warrant uh, to to justify them being on your property. The family says that they weren't shown a warrant. That wasn't shown until after the fact, which we've already talked about in in previous um, discussions. But also, you know, I go back to, so if they had this information, if they suspected Mr. Katanko might have gotten rid of a gun or someone stole a gun, whatever they're trying to suggest, wouldn't the first call that they make go then to the local Simcoe um, OPP detach, they know him very well, would, they, would it not have been incumbent upon them to say, look, we've got a guy, he's in your jurisdiction, what can you tell us about him? Can you help us carry this out? Like, those seem to be basic steps that weren't taken.
2: That's right, and that that's a big concern that we have. Um, You're quite right about the search warrant. It was never presented to the family at the scene. Um, You know, we didn't get it until almost. You know, it was in December, so quite some time after Roger was killed. So there are you know serious questions about whether it was the valid execution of a search warrant because they may not have had it at the scene. But you're quite right. There should have been contact with the local authorities, the local OPP. They knew him best. Absolutely. And, um, you know, this all could have been dealt with, you know, on a very, a very simple manner, uh, you know, manner of just calling up Roger, Uh, the local PP could have contacted and said, hey, the Toronto police, you know, they want to, they want to execute a search warrant and it could have been facilitated, but, but it didn't happen.
0: And you ha- have you been able to get clarification? I mean, if there was a customer in the shop at the time, which Mr. Katenko was said to be meeting with, if the police opened fire, as they did with four shots that killed him, um, has anyone been able to interview that that uh, customer who would have witnessed all of that? And wouldn't there have been a responsibility on the police to wait for that person to leave before they opened fire?
2: Absolutely, Alex. You know, that that's a concerning fact as well, that... You know, we know that this um, this individual was waiting for Roger when he came back around 12 noon on November 3rd, and uh, the police allowed this individual to go into the shop with Roger and he was in the shop when when he was killed. So, you know, assuming that is a customer, that is a very dangerous game that they were playing. And, um, you know, that person obviously would hold a lot of information about what went down. I do understand, Alex, that the SIU did interview this individual and we have been in contact with the SIU this week and they expect a decision by, I think, March 22nd. The, um, the investigation report uh, has been provided to the director of the SIU and it's now with the director to decide if, if there are charges uh, laid in this tragedy
0: yeah i mean if they table that report by march 22nd that will be about the uh, biggest miracle i've ever seen with the siu because they are known to be very very slow in in delivering does that mean then that they have interviewed and had cooperation from uh, the police officers um, involved in this
2: well that not the not the actual officer who fired the fatal shots um he which he's allowed to refuse to you know to be interviewed, and, and mm-hmm. he chose to do that. I do understand that they interviewed the other officers who were present at the scene, but the actual officer who fired the shots did not give an interview, um, but they did you know really have the benefit, I believe, of interviewing the individual that was with, uh, who was with Roger at the time. so it'll be interesting to see you know what comes of it.
0: Have you heard anything from the Toronto Police? I mean, have the family uh, talked at all? Have they been able to get any more clarification just, uh, just for their emotional well-being? Um, or is it all tied up and sealed um, with communications between either party?
2: Well, we, we have, uh, I myself have had contact with the Toronto Police and uh, their, their lawyer. Um, and then also on the civil side of things, they have retained their lawyer now. Um, to defend the lawsuit. And so that's that the wheels are in motion with the lawsuit. But of course, things will be on hold until a decision is made about a criminal, a criminal charge. And that's, that's what we're anxiously awaiting. And we're, we're hopeful that the SIU will come back and, and lay a charge or charges against the officer.
0: And how confident are you that that book, uh, you know, that would um, obviously be a big piece of evidence will will clarify um, much of this?
2: Well, we're hopeful. um, Number one, we need to get it and see it. Um, I I myself am not privy to what would be in there exactly. So, Mm -hmm. you know, until until we get it, I I really can't say anything about that. Sure, it's a piece of the puzzle here, but it's not the entire story. Uh, Again, whatever the reason was that they were able to to obtain the search warrant, it didn't justify killing Roger, um, and it didn't justify the way that this was planned and carried out. I I should point out that they did this on an urgent basis. They obtained the search warrant on November 3rd. They went there on November 3rd. This This is so, Alex, despite them alleging the transfer of the two guns was done between 2009 and 2021, so... If the alleged conduct was supposed to, you know, the offending conduct was supposed to have occurred in 2009 to 2021, it certainly didn't justify a rush raid on Roger the very same day they obtained the warrant.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that uh, they couldn't have taken a breath and said, "Okay, how are we going to carry this out? Which, again, um, why the the, the quick turnaround on this? Nonetheless, um, it'll be interesting to see what that report says. And I guess that will be the next major update in this case. And we'll uh, look forward to chatting then. Appreciate your time.
2: Absolutely, anytime, Alex.
0: That is Michael Smitschuk, who is representing the family um, of Roger Katenko, and so uh, the SIU is said to be coming out with the report around March twenty-second. Hopefully, that will stand because certainly, when you're involved in an investigation um, with the SIU, uh, you know if you're unfortunate enough to to be caught up in that, it is just a nightmare because everything. Basically shuts down behind a shield of blue. And you're just left there to wonder, well, what are they saying? What's being talked about? Where does the investigate? Where are the answers that we need? And it can oftentimes be drawn out for absolutely months. And so it'd be very interesting to see um, you know, what the findings are. But nonetheless, this story has never sat right with me, and so I'll be very much looking forward to what the outcome is. Despite all the promises that we've you know, prepared for this pandemic. SARS was our dress rehearsal. We've now been forced into endless lockdowns for two years, all to prevent our hospital systems from collapsing. And when you look in the bigger picture, Ontario's got almost 15 million people, and yet it only took 3,600 people to cause us to lock down. And we spend hundreds of billions every year on healthcare in this country. We have one system on offer. It's been strained for years, and this pandemic, of course proved that it's clearly not working as it's set up now. And when you compare us to other similar developed economies and countries, when it comes to ICU beds, Canada ranks near the bottom of having the fewest beds compared to other countries. And recently in a Maclean's article, Premier Wynne admitted herself that she made a mistake, that her government cut spending on health to balance the books. And she couldn't balance those either. But Premier Ford is out there announcing billions of dollars in new healthcare spending. And he claims that his government's added 3,100 beds, and yet we always seem to come up with band aid fixes that don't really actually address the issue. Bernard Lord is a former premier of New Brunswick. He is now the CEO of Medavi. This is a healthcare delivery and plan administrator and runs most of the healthcare systems in Eastern Canada. Good to have you.
1: Nice to be here, Alex. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'm sure uh, you had a lot of headaches as Premier having to deal with the constant fight of getting funding for healthcare with the federal government, and there's never nearly enough money in this country for that. But we do spend an awful lot of money on healthcare, and I think Canadians are starting to say, like, where's this money going to? Why is it not able to get us the capacity we we
1: need? Yeah, and those are completely legitimate questions, and you're right. We, we do spend a lot of money in healthcare in, in Canada, you know, I look back at my time as Premier, I was listening to the intro, I balance the books uh, every year, but almost 100% of the new funding over a period of eight years went to healthcare. So everything that the government took in extra went to healthcare, and it was because there's a, an increasing demand for health. So let's just take, if we can just take like 30 seconds and look at that context. We have an aging population. We have more and more demand for new services, there's new medication, new treatments. That are available every year, new things that were not available 20 years ago. I, sometimes I give the example, you know, the wait time for a CAT scan when I was elected premier was zero days because there was no CAT scan in, in at the time. And we brought in the CAT scans. So it just shows that it, this is evolving. But what the pandemic has taught us is we need to be ready not only for what we can predict, but we also need to be ready for what we can't predict. And we could not predict the pandemic when it happened, but we need to be ready for that. And what, it, what that means is we need to innovate. We need to innovate our thinking. Yes, it requires more funding, but we also need to find new ways to provide the health care and the services that people need. And frankly, when you, you look at what does this mean, what's the challenge of making sure we provide the right care at the right place at the right time, at a cost that we can all afford, it's one of the biggest challenges of this generation because we have an aging population. We have an aging population of patients, but also an aging populations of the health professionals, and that's what we're all trying to tackle. In our company and, and, and our organization, to Menaby Blue Cross, Menaby Health Services, Menaby Health Foundation, we bring some solutions that are practical, real solutions. And our, you know, we don't try to change everybody's ideology. We just want to improve the well-being of patients.
0: I mean, you talk about, um, you know, if the, the term two-tier or privatized care comes up in this country, it is a third rail for any politician. I don't need to tell you that. But I mean, we can't not have this conversation because oh, clearly um, the spending that should have happened after SARS, you know, didn't happen. And, and we clearly have to fix this system. And so how do you fix it or how do you think it should be fixed where you're not creating two totally different systems, but you're thinking outside the box and saying, OK, look, we're still going to have a universal Care, but here's what we can do Absolutely. to implement it and make it better.
1: Absolutely. And I'm glad you raised the question, Alex, because those are the types of conversations we need to have in Canada. We can't be afraid to talk about the future of healthcare just because we're gonna to touch the third rail of Canadian politics and just, and, and sometimes there are people that will wanna use certain words to kill debate. They'll say 2 tier healthcare, Americanization or private care mm. and so on. The truth in Canada currently, when you look at all the healthcare that is provided, it's about a 70-30 split. So 70% is public, 30% is private. And a lot of the innovation that helped us through the pandemic came from the private sector. Think of virtual care and virtual mm. visits that innovation came from the private sector. Some of the medications to provide vaccines came from the private sector. So there is a role mm-hmm. for the private sector, but it's not. It should never be a debate about do we want to be like the Americans are. in. You no, know, there's there's other options around the world. I I chair a group called the International Federation of Health Plans. It's uh, CEOs from health plans from around the world and. Um, we come together to bring new ideas, to find better solutions, to learn from each other. And Canada can do the same. So we can have a publicly funded healthcare system accessible to all, but we can bring some private sector solutions to that. And take, for instance, you know, the, the organization that I lead in, in Canada, we, uh, we run the ambulance system for the whole province of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. And we've combined mobile integrative health so we can... Treat people where they are rather than transporting them always to the hospital. So we ease the pressure on emergency mm-hmm. departments. In fact, we do that. We have operations in Ontario, we have operations in, in Saskatchewan, and we do that. We need more of that type of thinking. And we have to get, we have to get out of the you know the ideological mud, if I can say it that way, in the sense that you get stuck in it mm-hmm. and think of what is practical for patients. And these, some of these debates over the decades of, you know, is it universal, is it private, is it, has hurt the progress. At the same time, people that work in the system are extremely dedicated when you think of, and we've seen it in the last two years, the, the, the frontline workers are extremely mm-hmm. dedicated to patients, but sometimes it's our system, the way we're structured, we're not fully maximizing their talent and their efforts.
0: Not to mention um, helping them with their burnout or bringing more into the system. But you've been in government. Um, You know that the biggest barrier uh, to these conversations oftentimes are the unions or the special interest groups. And so, you know, maybe it's not now that you have the conversation, but maybe once this wave is over, but at some point... Uh, guys like Premier Ford, they're going to have to sit down and figure out a way to have these conversations. And so how do you remove that barrier strategically to be able to say, look, we can't keep getting into this mudslinging and, and these ad campaigns that scare people from the topic, because if we don't have this conversation, I think what we're going to continually see, um, given the precedent set over the last two years, is like shutting down the hospitals or shutting down you know, segments of the population every time there's more strain to the hospital systems. And we can't live like that
1: no and that's not the solution for patients and so we, we we can't be afraid to have a discussion but we need an honest conversation and not a conversation of slogans and how do we bring real world solutions that exist in canada some that exist from outside canada to improve the services and reduce the wait times for patients that is the key and you know our you know, the organization that i lead thats Part of what we do. We, we're we we're a private sector, but we don't have shareholders. We're not profits. Mm-hmm. We don't pay dividends. So it kind of protects us a bit from that conversation because we're practical. We just want to improve the well-being of Canadians. We want to reduce wait times. We want to improve um, ambulance services. We want to improve care in the home. And we do that. We also provide coverage. We are the largest Blue Cross in the country. And we need these types of solutions. And and I agree with you, Alex. It's important to have that conversation because if we don't have the conversation, we'll, we'll live under this impression that we have the best healthcare system in the world. But frankly, when you compare our system to other places, how much money we put in and the results we mm-hmm. get, it is not the best system in the world. The people that work in our system are the best in the world. but The system itself needs some improvements. And that means it's, it doesn't have to be wholesale change it sometimes it's constant uh, incremental improvements that are required but let's not be afraid of that and the pandemic has taught us that we can do that we if you go back how many virtual care visits there are today in canada compared to two years ago two years ago you couldn't even talk about it now everybody does it and shows that we can move quickly when we have to let's not wait for the next crisis to improve healthcare in Canada. And there's constant improvement. Healthcare today is better than it was 20 years ago. It's just demand on the healthcare system is greater. So how do we keep up with that? And that's a challenge, we need to be innovative. We can't just look at 1960s solution and model and think it will apply in in the 21st century. We need to adapt.
0: Yeah. Guaranteed we're all getting old, and I do not want to live in a system like this if I'm old, because it's clearly broken. But nonetheless, I hope that the time is now. Very much appreciate your time on this.
1: Thank you very much. Happy to talk about this. Thanks, Alex.
0: Perfect. And we will keep talking. That is uh, Bernard Lord. If you know the name, he is the former premier of New Brunswick. And so there's solutions on the table. It's whether or not we're I guess brave enough to finally have a conversation that was needed a whole long time ago. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join me live, 6.30, Monday to Friday. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point.